Is Christianity a hoax, a triumph, liberating, unbelievable, or iconic? I'm presenting a five-part series on revisioning Christianity with my guests Bart Ehrman, John Shelby Spong, David Skirbina, Angela Yarber, and this week, John Dominic Crossan. I don't think we can have spirituality without theology. I'm not convinced we have theology without religion. And I'm not convinced we can have religion without God. And by God, I do not mean somebody sitting up there with puppet strings. I mean a transcendental metaphor. That's what I mean by God that grounds us. I don't think we can do it. But I think another transcendental metaphor, prophet or greed or mammon, comes in to take its place. John Dominic Crossan talks about the book he co-wrote with his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. I'm beginning a five-part series on revisioning Christianity. How did Christianity triumph? Was it a hoax? Is it unbelievable? Does it yet have a message to inspire peace and justice? My five guests include Bart Ehrman, author of the newly released The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World, John Shelby Spong, author of the newly released Unbelievable, why neither ancient creeds nor the Reformation can produce a living faith today. David Skirbina, author of the newly released The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. Angela Yarber, creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. And starting us off, John Dominic Crossan, who with his wife Sarah Sexton Crossan have just released Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the original Easter vision. Our species in the last 3,000 years moved from an iron sword to an atom bomb. How do you think we're going to do in the next 3,000? What's going to stop it? What will stop that ascending trajectory of escalatory violence? This image, this image at least as an image, proposes one solution. Is there anything that can stop violence except nonviolent resistance to violence? Professor John Dominic Crossan is regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He's the author of 30 or so books, including his hugely influential The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant. This is the third time Professor Crossan has been on Progressive Spirit. Previously on this show, we discussed uh, his books, The Power of Parable, How Fiction by Jesus Became fiction about Jesus, and how to read the Bible and still be a Christian, struggling with divine violence from Genesis through Revelation. His latest book, Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision, is the result of a 15-year detective story, travelogue, history, theological reflection, and discovery of the universal resurrection image in Eastern Christian iconography. It's a book you have to see as it contains beautiful photographs taken by Sarah Sexton Crossan of these icons on their journeys through Egypt, Turkey, Syria, Palestine, Israel, Russia, and Italy. Welcome, Professor Crossan, to Progressive Spirit. It's a pleasure, John, to be with you. Is it correct to say that this book is uh, 15 years in the making? It is, but that would give you the idea that maybe 15 years ago we knew what we were doing and starting a book. That's not the way it happened at all. Usually, you know, you start a book by taking an idea to your editors and all the rest of it. What happened was actually the four of us, the Borgs and the Crossans, were taking 40 people every year around Turkey in the footsteps of Paul. That's what we were thinking about, Paul. And then we began to see a very unusual, striking image 
All the others we would recognize images, say, of from the Annunciation to the Ascension. We say, yeah, 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 that's very creative, but we recognize them. And then we started seeing a very different image for the resurrection, right next to crucifixion and before you got to the ascension. It was totally different from our Western expectations. Now, I would say in 2002, when this started, think of it as transient curiosity. No way were we planning a book or anything else. Oh, we were in Cappadocia. This is kind of surprising. <laughs> but everything in Cappadocia is surprising. So... <laughs> It really took a few years before we began to see, wait a minute now, there's a pattern. Everywhere we go in the East, we're running into the same thing. So then we did start deliberately going to places like Serbia, Romania, you know, and to see it. And I think it was 2014, actually, before I talked to Harper and said, I think there's a book here. And they said, well, you're going to do art history? And I said, no, no, really, it's art theology. And the reason Sarah must be on the cover is because it's her images that started this whole thing. You know, very often Sarah would take a lot of images, maybe nine gigabytes. We'd come back home, put it up on our TV and say, wait a minute. You know, you don't have time to see stuff when you're moving <laughs> two weeks through, <laughs> through Turkey. So it really started 15 years ago, but no way were we planning a book 20, 15 years ago. You talked about it as a detective story. It really was a detective story. If you start with, I don't even want to say a clue, because that's even too positive, with, with a mild curiosity. Then I began to say, okay, this is coming up too often. This is not an idiosyncratic thing in, let's say, Cappadocia. We're finding this in Serbia, Greece, Russia. We're finding it in Romania. We're, everywhere we're going, and now we're going deliberately to check Cyprus, uh, Crete, across the Mediterranean, Sicily. Hey, this is Eastern Christianity. And of course, if we were in churches very often right after Easter, because we usually went in May for the good weather, we'd see the icon would be there for devotion, taken down, put on a red carpet, say in Belgrade Cathedral, and people would walk in, red carpet with the red ropes, you know, and people would walk up to this icon of the universal resurrection, touch their forehead to it, kiss it, and so this is a living tradition, and it, it it amazed me then that in the West, including scholars, great scholars who write books about the resurrection, don't seem to know they're only talking about the Western resurrection. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, you've been a lifelong scholar of historical Christianity, and yet this was, uh, in, in many respects, new information for you. It, it, how is it that the West isn't aware of Eastern Christianity? Well, the West isn't aware of an awful lot that isn't Western, if I could be very blunt. Okay. <laughs> they get confused between the West and the rest. Uh, and, you know, I should have known it. I really should. I should have known it because if you're reading in the, the meaning of resurrection in the Jewish text before Christianity, they're really not talking about an individual. If they want to talk about an individual like or Enoch or Elijah or even Moses, they talk about an ascension. It's quite within Jewish, pre-Christian Judaism that a very holy person can ascend to be with God. And the Greco-Roman tradition says exactly the same thing about Romulus. A great hero, not for sanctity, usually for military power, can be taken up among the gods. But they would never use resurrection for it. They would talk about ascension, assumption, apotheosis. So resurrection, let me put it bluntly, there was no concept in Judaism of an individual resurrection, an individual ascension by all means. So when they start talking about resurrection, there's a corporate, communal, universal connotation to the very term. That I should have known. That I did know, but it's way at the back of my mind saying, oh, it's about the last day, it's about the end of time, it's about blah, 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 blah. I, I didn't get it until I looked at a picture again and again, that showed Jesus, it looked like the Jesus I knew, carrying, carrying a cross, by the way, with wounds rather obvious, so an historical figure. I mean, the wounds don't come from heaven, they come from Pilate. But he's lifting Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve are the mythical prototypes of the human race. They're the biblical, they're, they're humanity. So from the very beginning of this image, even if other people like Abel or John the Baptist or David or Solomon are there, the ones you cannot skip 
or Adam and Eve. Sometimes you can be ungraceful and leave out Eve, but basically I could count that in a handful. It's always Adam and Eve. And it's the, the what would I call it? The wounded hand of Christ reaching out to grasp the limp wrist of Adam and yank him. I think that's a fair term. Yank him out of the sepulcher. And the same for Eve. So you're asking, how does a human figure, even if robed in transcendental glory, take the whole human race out of death? Because it's it's Hades. Clearly the the place is Hades with the locks and bolts flying in all directions and the the gates of Hades put in a cruciform position and Christ is standing on top of poor old Hades, who's really not an evil character. He's just doing his job, which is, you know, to be the gatekeeper of the prison house of death. And he just trying to hold the gates and let nobody out. And in comes Jesus, flattens him and takes everyone out of death. So I'm trying to say, before you get into belief or disbelief, what does it mean to show you Jesus liberating the human race from death? What does it mean? What does this image mean? Yeah, and that's and and that's the difference. Maybe we can go back again to the kind of the difference between the universal and the individual resurrection, as we see in iconography. Um, in in the in the West, the individual resurrection, uh, it took a while for artists, if that's the right word, yeah, to to pe- to uh, paint the resurrection. They had Jesus doing all kinds of other stuff, but they never really had him. Uh, can can explain how that developed? Yeah, this is one of the two facts. This book is involved in, I would say, two facts and three interpretations. And the challenge to people is, okay, you may disagree with the interpretations, but I'm going to take you back to to what do you see in the facts. Don't just disagree with me. Tell me what you think. The first fact in the life of Jesus, or we're talking about, say, the Annunciation all the way to the Ascension, has pretty typical images in the New Testament. I mean, the, the descriptions in the New Testament. If you were an artist and you said, I've been assigned to, to depict the Last Supper, well, you're going to go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say, okay, I think I got it. Now I need some creativity, imagination, of course. But I, I got my description. So if you imagine somebody working their way through Matthew and their, 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 their job, say, is in Constantinople in the year 400, and they've been assigned a huge imperial uh, job to depict a copy of Matthew with all the main events and full page illustration, serious imperial money. You're on a roll all the way through to the crucifixion. Then you suddenly stop. Where is the description of the resurrection itself? Okay, you see, I got lots of pictures of empty tomb. I got lots of descriptions of the women at the tomb, the disciples at the tomb, women and disciples, female and male disciples getting apparitions of Jesus. But it's all afterwards, it's effects, it's results, it's consequences. I got no description of the event itself. How do I do it? So that's the first basic fact in the book. Of all the events in the life of Jesus, or the church's great liturgies, if you prefer, the most important of them all, and it is Easter. The resurrection is nowhere described. Now, that fact opens the problem. So as you said, the West actually got there first. By the late 350 to 400, they started to imagine, imagine sarcophagi in the center of which would be the resurrection. To the left, you might have, say, the arrest of Jesus, and to the right, you might have Pilate, you know, condemning Jesus. But in the center image, they were, they were groping their way there. They had the two soldiers. So the guards at the tomb were already there. That's how we know it's the resurrection. One of them might be sleeping. The other might be watching. But you don't have a figure of Christ. He's everywhere else except here in this most important one. What you get is an image of the cross. And on it is the key row monogram of Christ surrounded by a wreath, very Constantinian. It's a symbol of Christ, half symbolic, half historic. And you kind of say to yourself, I mean, I'm looking, <laughs> maybe if you're around the year 400 and we're smart, you say, I don't think this is going to work because every other image has a physical Christ, body, I can recognize him, the ascension, there he is, disappearing into the clouds. Here I got a 
a monogram, a, a wreath, I, I got a symbol. But it took the West maybe, let's say, that's say 400 round numbers. It's almost the 850 for the West finally came up with the body. <laughs> oh, and it's slow. Oh, it's like he's getting out of a bathtub at first. Yeah, the first image <laughs> well, I that's had. That's very <laughs> blasphemous, but nonetheless, that's what it reminded me of. <laughs> no, in the Stutt you're right, in the Stuttgart Psalter from, from about 840, it's like he's he's in the sarcophagus and he's kind of waking up. He's not stepping uh -huh. out. Yeah. He's not hovering over. He's not disappearing. It's almost like, oh, what happened? But he's beautifully robed, of course. So, you know, it's not just uh, the corpse. But the next time then you'll get him standing up in the sarcophagus. And then a few almost centuries later, he's stepping out of the sarcophagus. And finally, I know we're almost up to 1300. He's hovering above it and disappearing into the clouds. That's the popular image uh, I've seen today, is up, standing up, uh, flying, really. Not not an ascension, but um, still above, hovering, as it, you say. It's, the only thing that saves it from being an ascension, sorry, an ascension, are the, are the guards. If you look ah. at the classical resurrection in the West, he's they're called hovering. <laughs> he really is ascending, glorious, gorgeous, magnificent. Down below, you'll have guards. Some are usually cowering, by the way. Some are sleeping and some are actually looking and seeing everything. So some sleeping, seeing nothing, some watching, seeing everything. But they're not doing anything, of course, except staying out of it. That's the classical image. If you go into Google and look up Resurrection of Christ in the West with magnificent images from you know, Tatian, Rubens, you see Jesus muscular, magnificent, but absolutely alone. That's the point. It's all about Jesus. It's so Western. It's like a magnificent superhero who's conquered death. And then when you look at the Eastern, it's so profoundly different in a way that I would say is not true of any other image of Jesus. I mean, if you take the crucifixion, East and West, there'll be differences, of course, but you'll recognize it. Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. My guest is John Dominic Crossan. Uh, he and his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, have uh, completed this book together. Uh, he's with me on Progressive Spirit via Skype from, from his home in Florida. We're talking about the different images of resurrection within Eastern and Western Christianity. And part of the, the challenge, why, why there could be two different ones, is because there's lack of really the text first describing it. Exactly. If you think for an example, the crucifixion, you're going to have Mary and John there. You, you may have the lance bearer, the sponge bearer. Of course, there's creativity. I don't want in any way to make it sound wooden. But you and I, West or East, are going to recognize it. It's a huge difference. And I would say the only place we have a huge difference is in the most important of them all, the resurrection. And it's either an individual resurrection for Jesus alone on the Western side and a universal resurrection in which he takes Adam and Eve, that is humanity, with him in the East. And he doesn't yep. just take Adam and Eve in the East. They, they, let's just describe this Eastern vision a little bit uh, with the various icons. He, he has Adam and Eve. Sometimes he's holding, as it develops, both of their hands, or sometimes it's, sometimes it's more of, as you wrote in there, uh, Jesus is a little more feminist, <laughs> perhaps, than, um, than not. But, but is there are the other guys. There's, uh, there's Solomon and David, and, exactly. uh, and and then a kind of a bunch of prophets that are somewhat unnamed. And um, and who else is it? Who else is in this party? Okay, the earliest one we have, the very earliest one we still have is from the year 700. It's in Santa Maria Antiqua in the Forum in Rome, which is now open to the public. It was closed for years. It's from the year 700. For once, we can date it for sure. And there he is, Adam and Eve. There's one with Adam only, one with Adam and Eve. So that's the basic one. Now, you can add but you can't subtract. <laughs> you're okay. not going to get rid of Adam and Eve. You, you might, if you're being ungracious or patriarchal, leave out Eve, but that's not going to happen. So around 700, you have Adam and Eve. Now, in terms of identification, only four more clearly identified people come up. The next two that appear are David and Solomon. And you know David because he's bearded and has a crown, and Solomon, who's kind of glued to his hip, is unbearded, and has a crown too. Now, the question why David and Solomon? Yeah, yeah. I'm not impressed by scholars 
even art historians for whom I appreciate very much, of course, for this book, saying, well, David represents the Psalms, that might be, and Solomon represents, you know, the wisdom tradition. Well, yeah, maybe. But I'm also thinking, who's paying for this magnificent, you know, mosaics and these gorgeous frescoes? I mean, of course, it's maybe the monks and everything else, but who's paying them? So if I'm a king and I'm interested in my dynasty and I'm paying very serious money to have this church decorated, I'd like to have the idea up there that a dynasty is kind of a good thing. Now, we won't get into what David did, he shouldn't have, or what Solomon did, but David and Solomon is the dynasty. So thank you very much. I'd like to have them in there, too. I suspect that's why they're in there. Would their their facial features be similar to perhaps the one who uh, promoted? Does that ever happen in these icons, that the facial feature might slightly represent the uh, the king that the one is trying to, you know, (laughs) please? That's that's one I never went into, but I wouldn't be surprised, especially in some of the exalted roles from uh-huh. the Easter vigil, if there was a little too much similarity between the local, <laughs> the local sovereign. <laughs> okay, so, I interrupted you, but go ahead. Yeah, so we got David and Solomon in there. They get in after about 100 years or so. I think about 800 they start appearing. Um, it's also interesting, it's in Papal Rome they first appear. And ironically, it's also in Papal Rome that we have the first image of the Eastern style. But of course, these are Byzantine popes. So now, who are the next two? And here's the huge surprise. John the Baptist doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's a kind of an obvious Mm -hmm. no-brainer. I mean, he died before Jesus. Shouldn't he be coming out? I would have thought if you said, give me two people that must come with Jesus from death. I would say, well, Moses, surely, and Abraham. But the extraordinary one we get is Abel. We get Abel and John the Baptist. And you know Abel because he's usually young. And he's often carrying a shepherd's cross, you know, the hook, not the the crook, the shepherd's crook. So these are like the first martyr of the Old Testament and the first martyr of the New Testament. So the six that are identified, there may be a whole crowd, but the six that are iconographically identified, Adam and Eve, David, Solomon, Abel, and John the Baptist. So two ancestors, two monarchs, and two martyrs. The rest of the crowd, usually, you might have a local saint identified sometimes, but in general, they're the only six. That's fascinating, with Abel and John the Baptist as the two martyrs, because there's a sense in which, right, the resurrection tradition uh, with the Maccabean brothers, uh, what is it, Second Maccabees, is that what it is, Second Maccabees 7 or something, and those seven, those seven are never depicted, right? Well, it's interesting, by the way, in the... uh, Santa Maria Antiqua al Foro in the, in the Roman Forum, which is where you get two of the first images from around 700, one outside and one inside of this universal resurrection. In there, inside that church, and still visible today, you do get the mother of the Maccabees and the Maccabees. So these are considered, yes, I don't want to Christianize them, but you understand, these are part of the martyr tradition of Judaism and Christianity. So yes, they're there as well. And the mother is there. One of the things that one of the word that comes up that it is not used often. I don't believe in the West. Um, I have I, I rarely have used it as a minister. Is anastasis, um, and that means resurrection. But it also has a you used it one very creatively called uprising, which I kind of liked, um, or rising up or rousing up, and 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 often how the depictions um, of of. Christ rising people up, rousing them up out of their dead, uh, is depicted in the Psalms as, as a visual commentary on the Psalms in which God is often called to rise up. And that, that was all new to me. Can you, can you talk more about that? Yeah, that goes back to 2002, May of 2002, when we're in Cappadocia waiting to go in. The churches are carved inside the rock, like into the tough, in, like the catacombs in Rome. And so there's choke points as you're getting in, maybe 10 people at a time. So you're outside and we're reading the signs and the signs in Turkish, German, French and English. So we're reading the English sign that describes what we're going to see, the Annunciation, the Visitation, all of that. And then instead of using English for resurrection after crucifixion comes the Greek word anastasis. That's a first surprise. Now, when you get inside and you see the the uh, fresco, that is the word that's in the fresco itself, above the head of Christ. It doesn't say resurrection 
or resurrection in Latin. It uses Greek and says anastasis. And that comes from two Greek words, ana and stasis, up, rising, literally. But stasis is a Greek word that has a bit of an edge to it. You know, it could be used for rising up from the table. But if you talk about a stasis in Greek, it has a slight political edge to it. You could be condemned for stasis. It's for rousing up the people. So anastasis uprising is not an innocent term. It's not just, oh, how nice for Jesus. He, he had a hard day on Friday, but Sunday's great. It, it has a, I'm going to say, more than communal. I, I, when I first started writing the book, almost halfway through, I kept using the term individual resurrection, communal resurrection. Then it suddenly struck me, no, Adam and Eve aren't communal. Adam and Eve mean universal. It's not just two nice people who come out with Jesus. So I had to go back over the whole book and get rid of communal, which is still fine in some of the advertisements, and put in universal, because the claim is made about humanity. And you either have to laugh at it or decide, is there any validity to this idea of a figure from the past, a living person who was crucified for nonviolent resistance to Roman law and order. He wasn't crucified for being a nice little person patting babies on the head and telling little stories. Rome didn't waste crucifixion except on somebody who opposed Roman law and order. And if he did it violently, of course, they crucified you and all your closest companions. Jesus opposed Roman law and order, but non-violently, because that's what Rome did to non-violent rebels. We pick off your leader, you're still at it in five years, we pick off your next leader, and we keep doing it until you get the message. That's the way they handled non-violent opposition. So you have this Jesus, he's got wounds. They don't disappear when he gets to heaven, as it were. He is still the crucified one. And in all of these images, He's carrying a small ornamental cross. He's carrying a cross. It's a bit awkward. He's got it in his left hand and he's, his right hand, he's trying to grab Adam. And then when he gets finally to be a two-handed <laughs> yanker with Adam and Eve each getting a hand, some angel has to assist to carry his cross because they won't separate crucifixion from resurrection in these images. It is the crucified one who liberates humanity from death. My guest is John Dominic Crossan. He and his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, have produced a beautiful book on early Christian art that is part detective story, part travelogue, part art history, and part art theology. It is Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept, the original Easter vision. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Shuck, and this is Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. John Dominic Crossan is my guest. Professor Crossan provides the history. Sarah Sexton Crossan provides the photography. Together, they give us Resurrecting Easter, how the West lost and the East kept the original Easter vision. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. And that's the real difference. And, and, and you know, you didn't get it didn't get hit by a bus. <laughs> he didn't get run over by a horse. He was crucified by state-sanctioned terror. And so, if resurrection, that has to have a connection with the injustice of the death at the first place. So there has to be a defeat of the powers, in a sense. There really has to be, John. I mean, you can't you can't really say, well, this is something about substitution or even about extreme suffering. Of course, of course, crucifixion was extreme suffering. But if the Romans wanted to, conflict, to inflict on Jesus extreme suffering, they would have done something else. The point of crucifixion is to, to put up a poster. This is what happens to people who oppose our system. 
take a good look. Do the same and it'll happen to you. That's why they waste iron nails and a squad of soldiers and a public execution rather than, you know, garroting him in the barracks and tossing his body over the, the wall as they do with some general nuisance. They're making a statement. This person, and that's what their law says, actually. Their, their civil law says that those who raise tumults among the people, now that's not armed rebels, rebels, but those who raise tumults among the people should be, according to their status, crucified, thrown to the beasts, or exiled to an island. In other words, if they're an important person. So by Roman law, the way you handle nonviolent resistance, and that would be little, that would be more than a philosopher, like a cynic or a stoic philosopher criticizing riches or, you know, mocking power. Eh, no, it took what we might call an activist. It took something that the Romans said, okay, you crossed the line here from speaking. You didn't cross it into violence, but you crossed it into mm, activism. For example, <laughs> coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. Pilate would be coming in from the west, from Caesarea on the coast, on his horse, of course. Jesus comes in from Bethany to the east on his donkey. Very funny. It's a lampoon. It's mockery, depending very much on whether Roman will take it or not. So that's what we mean by, by actions that are rousing the people. And, uh, of course, his uh, demonstration uh, in the temple. I mean, he didn't clear all the tables in the temple, but it was, it was an action of some kind to uh, nonviolent, for the most part, right? Yeah. Yeah, the whip maybe in one of the things, but he was whipping animals, not people. And, and um, uh, But nonetheless, it was still, a, it was still a, and that part, he could cross the line, so he gets uh, executed, but he's not violent. So had he been violent, all, all of he and his followers would have been uh, crucified as well. Yeah, for example, either the entrance into Jerusalem, a kind of an anti-triumphal mockery almost, on the donkey. It's not that Jesus is exhausted after walking from, from Galilee and he needs a donkey. He, as it were, like the prophet Zechariah says, he comes in to end war, as it were, in, in a mockery of the war leader coming on his war horse. Then the temple, the action in the temple, which is now a collaboration, the high priests, whether they like it or not, are now collaborating with Rome. And there's a giant Roman eagle above the temple doors. So is this the house of God or the house of Rome or what? So what Jesus does symbolically is shut the place down. Symbolically, of course. The, the tribute that everyone gives willingly and there's nothing at all wrong with it, he just overturns the money changers. Not because they're evil, or not because they're defrauding anyone, but without the tribute, the temple is going to close down, given willingly all across the Jewish world. So it's a symbolic action. And the fascinating thing is that Jesus is not crucified by our language Sunday evening, Palm Sunday, or Monday, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, because as Mark says, the crowd, he says it repeatedly, the crowd is on the side of Jesus. But the authorities, the Jewish authorities who recognize the danger that may, he may bring the, the Romans down like a ton of marble on them, are against him. They want to get rid of him. So he's protected. Jesus was invited to come to Jerusalem by friends, associates, and told, now come to Jerusalem. No, you won't stay in the city. That's much too dangerous even at a full moon, dark streets, you stay out at Bethany. You get out of the city every night. You come to Bethany. We can protect you there. During the day, the people are on your side in the city. So it's a matter of grabbing him in the dark and getting it over before anyone knows what's happening. That's really the full story of what happens. And this is the Jesus then, who appears robed in majesty, taking Adam and Eve by the hand out of death. Led by him, of course. Uh, just one more question on the on the uh, the Holy Week part of it. 
I've <laughs> often heard sermons. I guess I've preached them before in the past, but I think since I've read you and some others, I don't, the same one, I don't anymore. That the crowd turned on him. The crowd that welcomed him on Sunday wanted his crucifixion on Friday. That's not the same crowd, is it? I cannot understand it as the same crowd. And I saw this in 1960. Uh, I was a priest in Rome and a monk, and I was assigned by my superiors in America to take 40 people, uh, Roman Catholics, around Roman Catholic shrines in Europe. We went to Oberammergau. What floored me was that at 9 o'clock in the morning, as the story begins, our Palm Sunday, the whole stage is filled by a couple of hundred people shouting, all for Jesus. Then by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock, they're all shouting, same people, by the way, against Jesus. For the first time in 1960, and I wrote about it, there's something wrong here. This is a, a weird story. Nobody explains to me how the crowd changed. You can say they changed, but that's not an explanation. So the only explanation I could have, and I said this in early 60s, is that the crowd who defended them during the week, a rather massive crowd, must be different from the crowd where the class in Greek and the crowd in English doesn't tell you how many people who came up to get their guy Barabbas out. And Pilate tried to palm off on the Barabbas crowd, this other captive Jesus. And they said, no, we want our Barabbas, who is, from their point of view, a freedom fighter, of course, in jail with his, <laughs> he's violent, so he's in jail with his companions, of course. So I understood this as Mark saying to Jerusalem in the 70s, you chose the wrong leader, the wrong savior. You chose the violent revolutionary, the freedom fighter, rather than the non-violent Jesus. So I'm trying to imagine, and I put it this way, if uh, Mr. Gibson in this movie had asked me <laughs> to tell him how many people do I need for the crowd scene on Good Friday morning, I would have said, uh, Mr. Gibson granted the situation in Passover in Jerusalem with crowded people, always danger of a riot. There was two of them we know in the first century, thousands killed. They're celebrating deliverance from Egypt under <laughs> subservience to Rome, dynamite. Volatile character like Pilate, whose solution in most cases, well, kill him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> God sorted out. I would say maybe eight people pushing it, maybe 10 went up to Pilate to get Barabbas out, because otherwise, if I were Pilate, I would say, good, here's more of them. Put them all in jail. If they're on Barabbas' side, put them all in jail. So I would think six to eight went up with their hands out, you know, no daggers under their cloaks and a lot of bowing and scraping and surring and pleasing and begging and bowing to get their guy out. It ain't the same crowd. That's the only way I can make sense of the story. Otherwise, you have to have a, you have to bring up somehow the crowd changed and there's no explanation. They didn't change on Sunday. They didn't change on Monday. They didn't change on Wednesday. On Wednesday, Mark says the high priest are thinking to give it all up. It's too dangerous. There might be a riot. Let, let him get out of town. He'll be gone at the end of the week. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with John Dominic Crossan. He and his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, are the authors of Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. We're really talking about the different ways in which uh, resurrection has been visualized and the theology and the politics, I think, uh, behind that in the Western and the Eastern traditions. So in the Eastern tradition, it's universal. We've got Adam and Eve, all of humanity. So does everybody make it? I mean, uh, is there any kind of uh, moral line there? Yeah, this is where the West, the West now especially, ran into a huge problem around the year 1000. I, I would say up to the year 1000, these two images, the universal are the individual, either one could have become the dominant one for all of Christianity, really could, or, or some combination of the two of them. There's Russian icons from around 1600 on, which have on the bottom, they have Jesus uh, emerging from Hades, and on the top, they have him coming out of the tomb. So they have both. And so all sorts of options were open. Then the West decided, no, maybe after the break with the East, we are going to have the individual one. But here was its problem all over its churches in the West. Remember, I said that the first examples of the Eastern model were in papal Rome. What are they going to do with all of these images? They're not going to disappear. 
they can not use them, of course, for Easter. But so they kind of tucked it away on Holy Saturday and called it either the harrowing, the robbing of hell, or the descent into hell, or the descent into limbo, and they box themselves into an awful theological corner because, well, then this shows everyone being liberated from hell. But nobody's supposed to get out of hell. And in the year 500, even, poor old St. Augustine gets a, a question from Bishop Avodius, who says, you know, I've been reading this stuff about everyone getting out of hell. But if everyone got out of hell with Jesus, why should there be anyone in hell on the last day? And Augustine is just about tearing his hair out because he doesn't have a good answer. So he goes about four pages and he keeps saying, no, 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 no. It's not everyone. It's not everyone. It's just some very holy prophets who knew about Jesus and foretold him. And when he arrived in hell, they saw him, recognized him, and they got out. Now, of course, the answer to that is, excuse me, it's Adam and Eve, Augustine. But finally, Augustine admits it in his last line are, says, I wish nobody ever talked about Jesus descending into hell. I wish they simply said he ascended into Abraham's bosom and let it go. So the West's descent into hell, harrowing of hell, any term you want to use, even if you make it limbo, which is a very Catholic response, ties themselves in theological knots. If you have Adam and Eve, they represent humanity, whether you like it or not. They ain't two people. If they got out with Adam, as it were, from hell, we're imagining hell now, the place of torment, Hades is no longer just the, the kind of guy doing his job. He's become Satan, the evil one. And there's flames all over the images. So the older images of Hades now are devoured in flames in some of the later ones in the West. This is This makes no theological sense. Everyone gets out of hell and then you're, your question, then what's the moral consequence? This is all a joke. Whereas what we're dealing with, when you're showing the human race getting out of death, raises a moral issue about human evolution. Adam and Eve are the biblical, what would I call it, prototypes or emblems or symbols of what I would call human evolution. <clears throat> they are our species. 70,000 years ago, our species, Homo sapiens, the only species of Homo that survives, comes out of Africa 70,000 years ago, spreads across the entire world, and from that point on, violence escalates exponentially. And I even want to say this to people, to fundamentalists who take the whole story literally and say, well, it's all human species are 6,000 years old, I would say to them, look, can I just talk about the last 3,000 for a minute? Whether you think it's 70 or however, our species in the last 3,000 years moved from an iron sword to an atom bomb. How do you think we're going to do in the next 3,000? What's going to stop it? What will stop that ascending trajectory of escalatory violence? This image, this image, at least as an image, proposes one solution. Is there anything that can stop violence except nonviolent resistance to violence? Not nonviolence. Jesus was not crucified for nonviolence. He was crucified for nonviolent resistance to violence. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. To be fair to the Romans, they did not crucify people for nonviolence. Of course not. They did crucify him for nonviolent resistance. So the image that I read here, and then this is the interpretation. The image simply shows Jesus taking Adam and Eve, the human race, out of death, not out of hell, out of Hades. So I would say to anyone, okay, what do you think is the message of that image? Let's not say whether we believe it or not. But if you and I see, you know, an image today of a, a famous person getting out of, say, a famous golfer getting out of a Buick, remember that old image? We know the message. It means not that only golfers <laughs> drive Buicks. It means if you would like to be famous or like this person or get with the game, we, we know how to read advertising. This iconography 
is magnificent ancient advertising. It advertises a program and a vision. If you go back to Rome, Rome was simply Mediterranean globalization. It was the normalcy of civilization in the first century. Rome would have said, yeah, of course we get peace through victory. I mean, they would say with sort of amazement that we're surprised. See, how have we ever got it? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, us, we're just doing it better than anyone else. <laughs> we're better at this establishment of peace. I mean, it'd be very wrong to say Rome is all violence. No, it isn't. Its motto is peace through victory. And that's the motto of civilization and all empires that have ever been. So the extraordinary thing to even imagine Christianity saying to Rome is, no, you guys are not establishing peace. You're establishing lull, L-U-L-L. You're just part of a pattern until the next empire comes around. And it'll be more violent because it'll take you. And then eventually it'll fall to greater violence, which will take it. So empire has been experimented with for at least, oh, what, say 10,000 years, I would say the time of the Akkadians. And it's time to do a cost accounting on peace through victory or the imperial model of civilization, just to see how it's done. With the um, image of the Eastern Church's uh, resurrection, of the universal resurrection, be be a good symbol then of peace through justice as opposed to peace through victory and and might the creators of that known that or is that something we're kind of realizing perhaps you're realizing now i think we're realizing it more there was nothing in the first century that said the romans could destroy the world now there is a difference that we are able to destroy the world we have been able to do it now for most of the last century. Why we will not do it, if you look at the trajectory of human history, I don't know. If somebody says, oh, no, no, we won't. Or if somebody says, well, don't worry because we're going off to heaven or somewhere, then I'm not talking to those people at all. I'm talking about, I might call it a next life here below. Do not have a next life, but a motto of something like peace to nonviolent resistance to violence, then we will not have a next life here below or anywhere else. So, yeah, we need an alternative, as I see it, and that's what I see visualized in this image. I don't know how much they see. I, To be honest with you, when I read pre-enlightenment images and pre-enlightenment texts, what enthralls me is they're seeing something profound. Now, I... I don't know if I'd say it that way, <laughs> but yeah, they're seeing something. So I have great respect in a way for ancient pre-enlightenment visions, not always for how they describe it, but what they're seeing. And I want to know, and I look at this image, okay, I, I don't think they could possibly see what we can see because they could never imagine destroying the world. Only God could do that and God wouldn't do it. It'd be an embarrassing admission that creation was a mistake. So we can see something that the ancients, or the world up to 1945, bluntly, could never imagine. We are now capable, and in fact we can do it atomically, biologically, chemically, <laughs> ecologically, and demographically. We have five different ways of doing it, and we're only up to E in the alphabet. Now, here's my five. I've got a few minutes left with you. John Dominic Crossan, my guest. He and his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, have uh, written this beautiful book. Beautiful in two ways. Uh, beautiful in terms of its message and beautiful also in terms of the uh, of the photography uh, the photography of the images. Uh, Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. A lot of talk about religion uh, today, uh, Christianity specifically. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, whatever on that question. But how can it be used for the future? What do you see as as the role, perhaps, of of church um, in terms of human evolution? What church is going to have to do very clearly is take a good look at its vision of Christianity. And it's going to have to admit whether it likes it or not. Jesus was not crucified for religion. He was crucified because of a religious vision that opposed 
the political vision, the normalcy of civilization. If somebody does not want to be a Christian, fine. Although I do like the preservation of species, so I would like Christianity to, to survive. And I am absolutely and totally a Christian. Because when I start with Christianity, I start in the first century. I ask, what are these people seeing? What are these people saying? Okay, I see how that applies still and always today. So yes, I am absolutely a Christian. And the defects and warts of 2000 years of Christianity, I accept as part of the legacy. I have to do the same for being a human being. Hmm. And for, for 200 years of being an American. So I accept that. And I'm not surprised. I do not think, let me put it possibly, I don't think we can have spirituality without theology. I'm not convinced we have theology without religion. And I'm not convinced we can have religion without God. And by God, I do not mean somebody sitting up there with puppet strings. I mean a transcendental metaphor. That's what I mean by God that grounds us. I don't think we can do it. By all means, try it. But I think another transcendental metaphor, prophet or greed or mammon comes in to take its place. So Christianity and any world religion should answer one question for me. If you are a world religion, what do you have to say to the world? And that means to human evolution. Tell me your message about human evolution. John Dominic Crossan has been my guest. He and his wife, Sarah Sexton Crossan, are the authors of Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept, the original Easter vision. Uh, Dr. Crossan, thank you so much for, for this work, but uh, your lifelong work uh, for uh, helping us understand not only the texts themselves, but uh, the vision for a possible future. Thank you, John, for having me. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on Progressive Spirit. You hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. KACR, Alameda, California. WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin. KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon. KYAQ, Newport, Oregon. KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. KBOG, Bandon, Oregon. And 3A Oldies 91.9 in Epsom, New Hampshire. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.